Well, thank you, Jennifer. Thank you. Uh, I am still glowing in, from the baptism, Ray and Mark. That's super exciting and a privilege for us to be a part of that. Uh, very fun, very encouraging. Hey, you know, you can't get answers if you don't ask questions, right? That's why we've got this series going on called Not Sure. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to raise questions about what we believe, what we don't believe. Uh, and I want to just say thanks for being a part of it. If, if you're not a church person, don't think of yourself as a believer, special thanks to you. Uh, maybe somebody sent you a link to this and you're watching. Uh, it says a lot about you, I think. What it says about the person who sent the link is they care about you and uh, that you would watch shows you care about them. So yeah, the conversation is more meaningful for us if you can be a part of it. And we really do appreciate that. What's true for all of us is that we've experienced a cultural disruption in our lives, right? Uh, for many of us, these last several months have been a crisis point, but I think for all of us, they're also an opportunity to step back and ask ourselves, you know, what's really important to me? What matters to me? This is what the great resignation is all about, right? Do I really want to give my life for that job? And so we're reevaluating what's important. What do I believe? And this is taking us back to the core claims of Jesus of Nazareth. What's true about him? And, and how does that affect or impact our lives? How would we like it to affect or impact our lives? So today, the question that we're wrestling with is this idea, you know, I'm not sure anyone really comes back from the dead, okay? Yeah, we just said that in church, didn't we? Yeah, I'm not sure about that, right? I know I'm supposed to believe that in church anyways, uh, but I, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. Okay, good. Well, then you've come to the right place. That's what we're going to talk about today. Let's begin by jumping into some of the original sources. Uh, best place to start with a question. And so if you have a Bible, uh, open up to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, this is the gospel of St. Matthew, and it's the end of, of his uh, biography of Jesus. There are four of them in the New Testament. And we're going to put the words on the screen, but you might like to be able to follow along. So pull it out on your phone or uh, pull out a book and turn to Matthew chapter 28. If you're able, um, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. And uh, when we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. So, and then if you believe it, you or if you're wrestling with it or trying to come to believe it, you could say, thanks be to God. Okay, Matthew chapter 28, verse 1 through 10. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, greetings. <laughs> and they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. 
go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Well, I see it's a familiar story. Mary Magdalene. This summer, I joined the company of Mary Magdalene and this other Mary, you might say. They, they came with linens and spices. Uh, we came with a backpack and a box. And they came to a rock tomb. I, I came to a beach. They came to say goodbye to a person who had been their closest friend and the one who promised to be their savior. We came to say goodbye to my mother who just passed away. We gathered in a circle on the beach, just family, uh, husband, um, adult children and adult spouses, grandchildren formed a circle. And you know, for some reason they asked me, George, would you say something? And, and I was like, you know, I don't want to say something. It's my mom. I, can't, I don't know what. But what I did do is I pulled out my phone and opened up my Bible app and I opened to 1 Corinthians 15, the first letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And I just read some phrases. And I, I want you to hear these phrases. Listen to this. Paul writes, this perishable body must put on imperishability. And this mortal body must put on immortality. It's one thing, by the way, to hear that stuff in church, but to be actually looking at a box of ashes. Um, what is sown perishable, Paul writes. What is, uh, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. And then he says, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. I read that and the question that kind of hung in the air was, is that true? And I looked around this circle of family members, young and old, some go to church, others definitely don't go to church. I'm looking at their eyes and I'm, you know, around this box of ash that used to be mom. I'm wondering, do they, do they believe this? The surprise for me in that moment on the beach was that it seemed to me as I read that passage that the Apostle Paul himself raises the question, is it true? Which really surprised me. It's just fresh. You know how sometimes you see something you hadn't seen? Paul himself seems to be raising the question, is this all really true? Because in, in the same chapter, and I read other parts of this, he says, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain. And your faith has been in vain. He says, if Christ has not been raised, as, as if to say, I know, dear friend, you're having to ask the question, has he really been raised? But he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And we are all of, most, of, all, of all people most to be pitied. And I thought, wow, this is the Apostle Paul's intellectual integrity coming forth, right? He's a scholar and he's, he's saying, I'm willing to be wrong. And I'm, this is such a robust claim that you should challenge it, question it. 
and ask yourself, did it really happen? If it didn't happen, then let's be gone with all the patronizing nonsense about just believe and faith and all the rest. So, so he, you know, it's interesting. The apostle does not ask them to set their reins aside to take what we call the leap of faith, uh, to suspend their disbelief. He does not. And if your faith, if your faith isn't rooted and grounded in something that's true, it's not worth a minute's consideration. You know, I, as I look around that circle, I realize there's not a person there, and I doubt there's a person here now listening to me that doesn't wish it's true. But the question is, is it true? Is there a fact beneath my faith? So uh, this is the, the question I want to explore with you today. And uh, what, what I'd like to do is share with you quickly two stories, then five facts, and then one question. No partridge. Uh, just the five, two stories, five questions, and one fact. So let me tell you first this two stories about two guys who come out very differently on this question. First of all is a guy named Bart D. Ehrman. Bart Ehrman. Now some of you have read his books. You've seen him on TV. He doesn't believe that Jesus rode from the dead. He's a very impressive scholar. Uh, he taught at Rutgers University, teaches now at UNC Chapel Hill. He's been on the Colbert Report, History Channel, NPR Newsweek, writes for uh, The New Yorker occasionally. And he grew up a believer. Right? He, he was baptized, grew up in the Episcopalian church. Uh, he went to Moody, Moody Bible Institute, which he says, they say, Bible is their middle name, and went to Wheaton College, went to Princeton Theological Seminary. But as he began to look closer at the facts around the resurrection of Jesus, he felt his faith was uh, diminishing. He was losing his grip on it. He was less sure of the story. In fact, in, in time, he began to revise his beliefs. Finally, he gave them up altogether. For example, in one debate that he did a few years ago with William Lane Craig, he said this, uh, I could dream up 20 explanations that are implausible but are still more plausible than the resurrection. So here's one of them. He's, he, he's not committed to this, but he says, for example, Jesus gets buried by Joseph of Ar uh, uh, Arimathea, Okay, two of Jesus' family members are upset that an unknown Jewish leader has buried the body. So in the dead of night, these two family members raid the tomb, taking the body off to bear it for themselves. But the Roman soldiers on the lookout see them carrying the shrouded corpse through the streets. They confront them. They kill them on the spot. They threw all three bodies into a common burial plot where within three days, these bodies are decomposed beyond recognition. He writes the tomb or says the tomb is then empty. People go to the tomb. They find it empty. They come to think that Jesus was raised from the dead and they start thinking they've seen him because they know he's been raised from the dead because his tomb is empty. That's Bart Ehrman. So, you know, you go, okay, that's possible. That is possible. That could have happened. Seems like it. And you should know there are many different alternative theories as to why that tomb was empty. Uh, for example, someone stole the body. That's the oldest tomb uh, theory, sorry, that the, the so-called swoon theory that Jesus was never completely really dead. He, you know, he recovered somehow in that tomb. He said, hey, I'm okay. I'm, uh, you know, and uh, that's the swoon theory or that the um, women went to the wrong tomb, got confused, or the people had hallucinations. They thought they saw Jesus or that it was a spiritual, not a physical resurrection or a pious fraud. The intent was good. So we kind of overlooked the fact that they lied to us. I mean, all of these are actual theories that we could hold to. 
For Ehrman, he doesn't commit himself to any one of these series, but what he says is, you know, what I know is that the least likely of all possible things, by definition, that could have happened is a miracle. A miracle is by definition the least probable thing. So he doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead or that anyone does. That's, that's Dr. Ehrman. The second story is about a different man. This man's name is James Wall, Wall, Warner Wallace. And James Warner Wallace does believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, he's also a very impressive character. He's a decorated homicide detective. It's kind of cool. He was trained in the LA Sheriff's Department. Uh, he was assigned to gang detail. He was a SWAT team member working with gangs. He turned out he was very good at cold cases, uh, murder cases that had been you know, unsolvable and left kind of fallow. He was actually the founding member of the LA Sheriff Department cold case unit. He was so good at it. And uh, he's also been on TV. You see him on Court TV, NBC, Dateline, other news outlets. Whenever they've got an unsolvable mystery, a murder mystery, they bring in uh, Mr. Wallace. So, but thing about him, in contrast to Dr. Ehrman, he, did, he was not raised a Christian. He was uh, raised an atheist, and he remained an atheist into his adult life, committed atheist, until one day he took the biggest cold case in history, a dead Messiah. So as always, he, he writes that it was his skepticism that drove him. He once said as a cop, if you believe everything people tell you, then you'd never arrest anyone. I like that. He was very confident that he wasn't going to find anything special happened at the gravesite of this crucified Messiah. And you might wonder, well, why did he even start this investigation to begin with? Well, it's because his wife had started attending church. She was dabbling in church, and this made him a little bit nervous. He said, I want to just cut this short really quickly. So he took six months and investigated all of the data that he could lay his hands on. And he did it the way a homicide investigator uh, would do it. He uses the tools of, of the specialty. So uh, what he calls abductive reasoning, which I had to look up. Uh, he had to learn to resist the presuppositions in the same way he did for murders. He did forensic statement analysis. And he came to the conclusion, Jesus has actually risen from the dead. That was his determination. So he's no longer an atheist. Today, Mr. Wallace is a committed Christian and he's a professor on the faculty at Biola University. So you had an interesting, Ehrman and Wallace, two men, two very different conclusions, looking at the same evidence. And we can learn from both of them. But the question today is, okay, what do you believe, right? What do you believe? Well, uh, you might say, I'm not sure. Okay, good, that's why we're here. Okay, we're not sure. So. How would you approach that question for yourself? You don't want to make a second-hand decision. You don't want to re uh, rely just on somebody else. You want to look at the evidence yourself. Draw your own conclusions. Be aware, the burden of proof is not just on those who claim that Jesus rode for the dead, rose from the dead. The burden of proof is equally uh, on those who say he did not. Either way, you have to come up with a historically credible explanation for the historical facts that are there. See? So what I'd like to do now, having shared those two stories with you, is uh, run quickly through five facts that I think are really relevant as you explore that question. So five facts, pieces of evidence. The first one is women. Fact number one, women. You're like, what? Well, notice in verse one in this text, it was women who discovered the empty tomb. 
it was women who first announced the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. Mary Magdalene, Magdala was where she lived on the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. She was not a notorious sinner, actually. She was a woman of great reputation. Mary Magdalene and another Mary who is not the mother of Jesus in this case. This is a Mary who's mother of James and Joseph. They're the first women. Now, that's wonderful. I love this, but it caused problems in the first century because it was a very patriarchal society. Now, it is in keeping with Jesus' approach to women because Jesus was constantly elevating women and constantly advocating for gender equality in a way that was an anathema to the society of that day. So it makes total sense from an insider's perspective that women would have this honor, but from an outsider's perspective, it's a problem. Because women in, in that day could not testify equally in court. Their testimony wasn't even, so you, if you were writing something, you would never make up the fact that women were the ones who were on the scene first. Now, that would be an embarrassment to the early church. Uh, and there was, must have been enormous pressure to try to revise the records so that the men, the guys, the important ones, the ones who really could testify that they were there first. But that's not what we have. So this is actually a bit of evidence of, of, of authenticity in, in this story. So women, number one. Secondly, disbelief. In verse two, we see the angel says something very interesting. I don't know if you, if you, if you caught it. The angel says, uh, he came back, he's, he's appearing just like he said, right? Three days, on the third day, he would, he, he would raise from the dead. So he had in fact said that. Do you remember that? Jesus had in fact said, I'm gonna die and then three days I'm gonna rise from the dead. He said it several times. You know what? Nobody knew what he was talking about. They didn't, they didn't believe him. They didn't understand that. It made no sense to him. What, the important thing to notice is it doesn't make sense to us. It didn't make sense to them. They're not as different as we are, as we think. We tend to think ancient people, yeah, they believe the wackiest stuff back then, right? They do think differently than we do, but they're not idiots, right? They know that when people die, they stay dead. They know that. So we have to give them a little bit of credit. C.S. Lewis talks about... Um, uh, chronological snobbery, uh, um, chronological snobbery by which he means this tendency that we as modern and postmodern people have to think that we know more than people in the past just because we had the good fortune of being born after them. <laughs> you know, it really doesn't make much sense when you think about it. But the point is, uh, th they didn't believe. They didn't believe. They weren't inclined to believe. You've heard about doubting Thomas. Well, even in our passage, if you turn the page or look down to verse 16, something very interesting, this Jesus has appeared to them finally in Galilee as promised. And verse 16, we're in Galilee. The 11 disciples are there. They went to Galilee. And then verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. By the way, the Greek there could be translated and they doubted. It, it, if, so it can't, you go, oh, that's Thomas. No, that's not Thomas because it's they. It's more than Thomas. I think it may have been all of them in some sense, which just gets us back to what Mike was saying last week. But if you did not hear Mike McAvoy's sermon or college pastor last Sunday, you got to go back and hear it. It was a great sermon. Was that not a great sermon? And Mike, yes. Mike is at home lifting weights right now because that's what he does when he's uh, worshiping online. But um, in his garage, hi, Mike. Uh, what he said was, faith and doubt coexist. 
And you see that right here. They, they literally see the physical Jesus Christ risen from the dead. They'd seen him die. Now they see him they're face to face and they worship him, which is what you would do. And they doubted. <laughs> because they have, they have no idea, no way of, uh, of wrapping their heads around the reality that someone who was dead is now alive. They worship him, of course. But they doubt as well, of course. So I want you to see that the skepticism of, this, of these people as they're wrestling with the challenge of this claim is an authenticating feature. It means they read this moment the way you and I read this moment. It's impossible. As Leslie Newbegin put it, the fact that a man who has been dead and buried for three days does not rise from the dead was well known even before the invention of electric lights. <laughs> okay, let's give them some credit. Disbelief, that's the second fact. Third, guards. Uh, verse 4 tells us there are guards that are present. It reminds us that the story, there are powers that be that want this tomb to stay full. There needs to be a corpse in that tomb. And so they put a big stone on it. They, they seal it with a, an insignia that says this has been authorized to be closed. <laughs> Open at your own risk. Uh, the penalty, did you know this, for Roman soldiers who tried to crucify someone who didn't succeed is Execution. The penalty for Roman soldiers who fall asleep on their watch is execution. The penalty for soldiers who do dereliction of duty, in other words, if someone were to sneak past them to steal the body, they all would be executed. These are highly motivated, highly skilled Roman guards. And so they're there at the tomb. The interesting thing is we don't just get the testimony of believers the pious who say the tomb is empty, we also get the testimony of the guards because if you read the very next paragraph starting in verse 11, they go back to the authorities and they have to concoct a conspiracy that says someone stole the body. They also have to receive very large sums of money because they know they are on the lamb because their story implies that they themselves committed a crime worthy of their own execution. So th there's a fact there, guards. Uh, third, witnesses. Uh, in verse 7 we read, there, meaning in Galilee, you will see him. So uh, there, it's, you know, there's evidence that the tomb was empty. Historians tend to agree on that. There's also evidence that people saw him risen from the dead. You kind of need both. You, just appearances without an empty tomb or an empty tomb without appearances, you don't really have enough basis for the claim. But we have both. We have witnesses. There you will see him. Did you know that the earliest written account of this um, event is not actually the Gospels? The scholars today believe the earliest written account is in 1 Corinthians 15, that text that I read on the beach. They tell us that the very first verses of that chapter preserve an ancient creed that dates back to about five years after the event. Just five years later, there was this creed and it said that he appeared to Peter, the, the twelve, and to more than 500 people, most of whom are still alive. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6. Most of whom are still alive. You can, you can verify this. You can check with these people. They're still here and around us. Including, by the way, hostile people like Paul, who was who persecuting Christians, and now he becomes one. And James, who is the brother of Jesus. We know that the brothers of Jesus didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. What changed James' mind? Let me ask you this, what would it take for, for, for your brother to convince you that he was the Messiah? 
<laughs> right? Something dramatic, I'm sure it would, you know, that, but that's what happened. James said, oh my gosh, been wrong all along. He is the Messiah, he's God, right? So these are all listed. This is, a very, this is a falsifiable claim because these witnesses are still alive in your midst, witnesses. Number five and last fact, the first day. In verse one, we read about the first day. In verse nine, we see they're worshiping on the first day. And there's a transition that's uh, without challenge or question in the history uh, that, that worship moved to the first day. In a very uh, faithful uh, Jewish community, that honored the seventh day as their Sabbath, we see a historical shift to the first day. What happened on the first day that caused this terrified, despairing group of disciples who are literally locking themselves in a room because they know they're the ones who are gonna be crucified next into these bold activists who are proclaiming joyfully the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. How do you account for that? And then this growing movement of people who are worshiping on the first day. You know, our phones are dated to this moment. So these are the five facts. Women, disbelief, guards, uh, witnesses, and the first day. As you work through this evidence, you may find it disturbing, you may find it compelling. One scholar writes that if it, all, if it is all made up, then this would be a much greater miracle than the resurrection itself. That, by the way, is not a Christian scholar. Uh, that is a man named Pinchas Lapide who is an uh, Orthodox Jew and a German historian. So those are the five facts that I wanted to look at with you. Next, uh, let me just ask you a question. What does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? What if it were true that this Jesus is alive, that he's present to you right now? How would that change your life? Would it change your thinking? How would it change the way you see this moment that we're in? How would it change uh, the way you see yourself and your own future? Well, um, let me tell you how it, it, it changes mine. And by the way, if you're interested in exploring that more, we want to talk with you about that. Um, after the service, we'll have a prayer team. would love to chat with you more right up here up front. Um, if you're worshiping online right now, there's a button in the chat that allow you to interact with somebody. If you're catching this later, you can come to upc.org slash Jesus and interact with somebody there. Um, I want to read a quote from N.T. Wright for you um, because what this all means to me is hope. That moment on the beach with the backpack in the box was a devastating moment for me. The cognitive dissonance between those ashes and my memory of my mother was so extreme. Um, I, I, I had to wrestle with a question, where is she? And, and this is the woman who brought me into this world, who loved me more than anybody else, and I, I wonder, you know, is, is that it? Is this it? Is this all that there is? Or is there something more? Is there someone greater who holds us both in love and in life? That was the question. And my answer is yes, because of the resurrection, hope. 
But this hope is not just a personal hope, not just an individual private hope, not just my spiritual hope. It's more than that. It's hope for the world as well. And this is what N.T. Wright says. It's so moving to me. I want to share this with you. He says, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters. That the injustices and the pains of this present world must now be addressed with the, the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter, which is you know, the celebration of, of the resurrection, means Jesus is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension to my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world. News which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things. And that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take away Easter, and Nietzsche was probably right to say it was for wimps. Put it back, and you have a faith that can take on the world. You know, that day, the image that I wish I could kind of get out of my head, but I can't, is of my dad struggling to delicately lay these ashes into the water. But what happened was there were waves, large waves. Um, we hadn't planned on that. And he was having trouble getting into the water and even standing in the water. And so this elderly gentleman, my dad, standing there, and he's just, with every wave, he's all he can do to stand on his feet, and then he tries to release mom's remains into the sea. And there's, a, there's an image for me that of, of, of him trying to stand there. And I, what the resurrection means is that he doesn't stand alone, right? That there is one, a king stands with him. And I kind of was imagining a hand, an invisible hand on dad's back, giving him the strength to stand against and, and lean into those waves. See, and, that, and that's what the resurrection means to me. Because because waves hit me, they're hitting us right now, they hit me, and I struggle with that. I struggle to find hope in that. But the promise of the resurrection is the promise that there is one who has forgiven my sin, who has broken the spine of evil, who has overcome death itself, and who is coming back when the trumpet sounds. Oh, my faith will be sight one day. In the meantime, I know that the power that brought Jesus back from the dead is at work through the Holy Spirit in my life. There is an invisible hand on my back pushing me into every adversarial wave saying, I've got this because he lives, because he lives, because he lives. That is my faith. That's my belief. It's not mine only. Uh, we said at the Apostles' Creed before, this is our faith. It's our belief. It belongs to the church and it belongs to you. And so this wonderful promise that the angels make to these women is also true for us. Go to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, he is going ahead of you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't claim to understand these, but we peer into the mysteries of life itself. 
that your love is stronger than death. Your love for us, your love for all of creation. This is the story that we're in. Not the stories of our fears, but the stories of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ lives and reigns in majesty and power for us in this moment. And one day, all things will be made new because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a fact of history. Uh, Be with us as we wrestle with this, we pray. Uh, Help us in our unbelief that we might say, he lives. And own that truth ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.